I'm David Bang from Impact Alpha. This is Agents of Impact, our series of interviews with change makers in and out of impact investing. The role of development finance institutions is to step forward, be counter-cyclical, provide funding and liquidity at a time when, uh, when commercial investors wouldn't. Um, and of course, that means you've got to take a significant amount of risk to do that. That's Nick O'Donoghue, CEO of the CDC Group, the United Kingdom's development finance institution. Let's jump right into our conversation. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, David. Nice to be here. The CDC group is not the uh, Centers for Disease Control. It is the actually formerly a Colonial Development Corp. Isn't that right? Well, originally, uh, when the organization was founded in 1948, it was actually the first world, the world's first development finance institution. Um, and really, in our view, the world's first impact investor. But founded in 1948 as the Colonial Development Corporation, you're right. In the late 1950s, we moved from being the Colonial Development Corporation to being the Commonwealth Development Corporation. And then sometime in the, I think, the early 90s, we moved from the Commonwealth Development Corporation to CDC. But you're right. You're absolutely right to say we are always confused. And particularly now, of course, the Center for Disease Control is so often in the news. And we are always, uh, we, are, we are often confused with CDC. And now, indeed, there's an African CDC. There's also an African Center for Disease Control. So we're also regularly confused with that one. But we are CDC formerly known as the Commonwealth Development Corporation and the UK's Development Finance Institution. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to have you. You have been sort of everywhere and know everyone um, <laughs> from Goldman Sachs to yeah. JP Morgan to Sir Ronnie Cohn and Big Society Capital to the Gates Foundation and now the and now the CDC. And so I'm delighted to have you to talk about what I think the common thread that I that, that seems to be coming through a lot of conversations lately is risk yep. and how as investors uh, you can price and underwrite risk and how all that is changing in the face of, of global crisis, obviously COVID, but also climate. And I would dare say kind of uprising um, against inequality and injustice. Yep. And so I'd like to get your opinion on all that, but let's also just get you situated first, because um, I said you've been you've been sort of everywhere. It gave you all of that gave you purchase. You did, had a, a, a very uh, nice column in Impact Alpha uh, a few months ago, putting some questions to one of your old uh, some of your old colleagues at J.P. Morgan about their development finance institution. Um, yep. And you were uh, you were sort of a, wondering sort of where Impact would play. Play. Did you get any response on that? I did get a very detailed response, very helpful response from J.P. Morgan within about 48 hours of that uh, article appearing. So they were, yeah, very construct and very constructive, and I think open response, uh, which I was impressed by. Nice, nice. I was impressed by the impact of Impact Alpha as well, but that it got such an immediate response. Thank you for that. Uh, so now, also, just tell us um, a bit about. Um, about CDC, you, you you introduced the the history a little bit, but you got like five point eight billion dollar portfolio, at least as of some some website uh, uh, posting. I don't know how to, I don't know how things <laughs> fare in the market, but that's about six and a half billion dollars U.S. And you invest about a billion and a half dollars a year, which if you were if you were a private equity firm, you know, uh, classic type, that would be a pretty large fund to be putting out a billion and a half. Yes. I, and CDC, as I said, is, is the UK's development finance institution. So we're 100 percent owned by the UK government, specifically by the Department for International Development. We've been around. We were, as I said, the world's first. I mean, nowadays, almost every developed country has within their sort of development family of organizations. They have a development finance institution in the United States. That's the organization formerly no, known as OPIC, now known as the IDFC. 
And then you have organizations like FMO in the Netherlands and DG in Germany. So we're part of that family. But we were the first development finance institution. And uh, we were founded originally, the original chairman of, of, of CDC was a gentleman called Lord Reith, who's very famous in the UK for, for, uh, because he was the founder of the BBC back in the 20s. And then he was the first chairman of, of CDC. And he said that the role of CDC was to do good without losing money. So we were set up to make investments, preserve capital, recycle capital, but at the same time have a positive impact at that time in helping to helping what were then the Commonwealth countries uh, uh, to um, to sort of redevelop after the war. So that was the origins of CDC. And then, like most organizations and particularly politically owned organizations, we went through a number of iterations over the next uh, 70 years. But in the last 10 years or so, uh, we are um, we've set up very much like a traditional development finance institution. We're different for a couple of reasons, I think, from some other countries' DFIs, partly because our investments are restricted only to two regions, so Africa and South Asia. So everything we do, we, all the investments we make go into one of those regions, Africa. And Africa, within Africa, it's mostly sub-Saharan Africa. And then uh, South Asia, it's India and the, and the neighboring countries. Um, so quite geographically focused, we invest in a, in a core sort of six or seven uh, different sectors. And we are a development and impact investor. Every investment decision we make is made principally because we think it'll make a difference to people's lives on the ground. Uh, and secondly, because we think it'll help us at least preserve capital make a, uh, and make a return so that we can recycle the, uh, the capital. So that's, we, we are, as you said, our balance sheet's about $6 billion. We are now investing, we've grown significantly over the last uh, decade or so. And so now, last year, we invested actually $2.1 billion, of which about $1.4 billion was in Africa, and the other $700 million was in, uh, was in South Asia. Well, let me just uh, press you a little bit. You said uh, do good without losing money on the one hand, and then everything done for a development or impact uh, uh, purpose on uh, on the other hand. Does that make you, where does that sort of place you on the spectrum of, you know, sort of risks and returns? Are you, you know, sort of more commercial or more concessionary? Uh, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think DFIs in the past have been, have been labeled as being, uh, as being too, uh, sort of overly commercial or too like a commercial investor. I think that has changed uh, over the last five or 10 years. But essentially at CDC, the way our shareholder is set us up is we have two separate portfolios. And one we call the growth portfolio. And that's more like a traditional development finance institution. It invests in a lot of infrastructure, provides a lot of financing through banks, invests in, uh, uh, we have a large proportion of our money invested in equity. That's the other thing that makes us different. And in private, and private equity and private equity funds. And we tried to do that obviously reasonably um, uh, for many, uh, many of them uh, in common with many of the other sort of newer impact investment firms. We'll try to do it at a, at a reasonably commercial rate. So that's a part of our portfolio. Uh, uh, but our required return on that portfolio is three and a half percent in sterling. Now, over the last uh, seven or eight years, we've earned something closer to six or seven percent. But you would probably say that's not commensurate with the risk, uh, with the level of risk we're taking. But that's one part of the portfolio. The other part of the portfolio is what we call catalyst. And there's been a lot of talk, a lot, a lot written about catalytic capital over the last couple of years. And CDC probably has one of the largest now, largest catalytic capital portfolios, about seven hundred million dollars. And the target of that portfolio is to um, 
really uh, take additional risk in return for enhanced impact. So it's allowed us to do a lot of things that our traditional growth portfolio wouldn't allow us to do. Um, I th the intention, uh, I mean, the shareholder is, the intention is to try to break even with that portfolio. Uh, but realistically, given the levels of risk we're taking, that's, uh, uh, that's a challenge, but it's, it's, um, uh, but that's sort of what we aim to do. Well, so you've sort of walked right into my risk uh, question mm. here because because you, you've sort of hit the nail on the head, which is that risk adjusted is really what we're talking about. You said in the main portfolio, you think you're possibly taking more risk yeah. than you're compensated for at some level. And that in the yeah. catalytic portfolio, you're actually looking for for things that are riskier if you can get it back in, right. in impact. So so are you're sort of underwriting risk uh, in, in both yep. cases. And I, I guess, yep. in a sense, taking on more risk than purely commercial investor might. Yeah, no, I think, look, if you, if you're our investment uh, portfolio, the places that we invest, the countries that we invest in are, we like to say we do the difficult deals in the difficult places. And we really do go to some, some, uh, a very uh, sort of out of the way, out of the way places, but, but we are within Africa, within sub-Saharan Africa, um, we are the large, we believe the largest equity, investor in sub-Saharan Africa, when you look across our direct and our indirect, our indirect portfolio. Um, Africa's been a difficult place to invest over the, particularly over the last five years, but uh, from a cyclical perspective. But when you look at our returns or indeed, or you look at benchmark returns for uh, uh, equity investment in Africa, you'd have to say that they're not consistent with a commercial risk adjusted rates. And that's the reason why, if you look at Africa today, and if you look at who's investing there, uh, particularly who's investing equity, there are very few commercial investors who go there. The only people doing it are the development finance institutions, people like CDC, people like the IFC, uh, people like the IDFC, who are still going there for developmental reasons. And to a small, but I suppose increasing extent, some of the larger impact investment firms. Well, is that or some of the larger impact investment funds? So the TPGs and the, uh, for example, have made a, a TPG impact fund. Rise has made a couple of investments there. Well, but is that a is that a function of the current crisis, or did that predate the crisis? And how has the no, crisis think, affected it? Well, the crisis has made an, a risky area even more risky. Uh, but uh, no, it, it predates. Uh, there was a period again, if we're talking about Africa. Um, there was a period around sort of 2013, 2014, where commodity prices were, were rising or prices high. I think there was a lot of enthusiasm, the, you know, the sort of economist cover Africa rising type story. Uh, uh, there was, a, I think, a real sense of enthusiasm around Africa. But once the oil price uh, broke, uh, a lot of that enthusiasm dissipated. Uh, returns have been returns certainly on equity in Africa have been very disappointing over the last uh, six or seven years. Now, how much of that is cyclical, and we'll we'll sort of see your recovery from, and how much of that is more secular? Because it's a you know it's difficult to invest in countries where the infrastructure is so poor. There are clearly significant governance challenges. You know, there's a shortage often of of human capital to really build businesses. So, I mean, it's a difficult place to begin with. Uh, but that's been reinforced by the cycle over the last five or six years. Okay, so you have that that cycle, as you said, and then you have the current crisis making a risky area yeah. even riskier. And mm -hmm. you also said that development finance institutions like CDC are some of the few that have stayed in. And yeah. you also said that development finance institutions have taken higher risk or 
become more impact development oriented, put it that way, over the last five or 10 years. Putting all that together, are you taking higher risk? And what do you think about the need to take higher risk in the context yeah. that we're in? Yeah, well, I think you have to take higher risk and you particularly have to take higher risk given the context of the COVID crisis and so on. And you know, the one of the way, having been obviously, as you said earlier, I spent a lot of time on the more, my career really, uh, the first 25 years of it was in the commercial uh, um, investment banking side. Um, and what you learn when you're on the sort of, when you're in the commercial investing, when, when something happens, when an event happens uh, like COVID uh, or like the global financial crisis, um, or 9-11, I mean, when these things happen, the immediate response of the commercial investment world is to try to reduce risk and mitigate risk. And the way they do that is naturally to pull money away from the places that they know least well, uh, that are the furthest away. And so that's what's happened in, once the COVID crisis really broke in, in March, again, to Africa. Commercial investors, uh, what the, the uh, we talk about commercial investors, we're talking about funds, we're also talking about banks, big, large banks, uh, pulled capital out of Africa. And the role of development finance institutions in those circumstances, because we're set up specifically to, to be developmental. So the role of development finance institutions in those circumstances is to step forward and fill that gap and be counter-cyclical. So that's what we've been trying to do. That's what the IFC and others have been, have been trying to do. As liquidity disappears from those markets and those countries, and remember, these are countries where they don't have the government sort of resources to provide the sort of support to companies that we do here in the UK or you do in the US. So it's critically important that development the role of development finance institutions is to step forward, be counter-cyclical, provide funding and liquidity at a time when, uh, when commercial investors wouldn't. Um, so it is our job. And of course, that means you've got to take a significant amount of risk to do that. Well, it would seem so because, I mean, in a sense, you're saying, you know, company, uh, businesses are saying, we need to invest to be re to reopen. Just to say that, I mean, in a, in a simple case, yeah. um, and yet at the very time we need to invest to reopen, our revenues have been slashed to nothing for months, and so we not only yeah. are in a worse position than we were before the crisis, but our prospects, our revenue prospects, might actually be worse than they were. Now, in some cases, they might be better if you're making something that's, yeah. that's needed or uh, what have you. But um, yeah. but uh, they're certainly different and. It's kind of a systemic risk, I suppose. It's not really subject. It's not really specific yeah. to that company, but yet for a lender or uh, or an investor, the risks obviously are higher. So, do you make who who pays for that risk? Does the entrepreneur or enterprise have to sort of bear the risk and pay a higher interest mm -hmm. rate, for example, to to get that loan? No, I think um, uh, you know. Again, the role of development development finance institutions don't exist to maximize their their portfolio return or their need their portfolio risk adjusted return. Development finance institutions are really impact are really truly impact investors. They they exist to 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 help support development, to support the private sector in poorer countries, to help them help companies grow, to help them create jobs, and at a time like this, to help them stay alive because. The effects in Africa have not been dissimilar from the effects in the United States or the UK. Business stops. And when business stops, you have this working capital, uh, this immediate working capital gap in many companies. And either they find a way to fill that gap or they go out of business. 
and, and hence jobs are lost and so on. A recent McKinsey study highlighted the fact that in their view, Africa is going to lose 10 million jobs as a result of COVID. That's in the formal sector. And then you've got this probably 100 million jobs in the informal sector. So yeah, the, and we call it, you mentioned it's sort of a systemic issue. And we call it, you know, the, the, the key part of our COVID response program is around, we call it systemic liquidity, because that's what it is. It's not a function of the fact that these companies have been performing poorly or poorly managed. It's a fact that there is no liquidity in the market. It's also particularly pronounced um, in many countries because of a shortage of dollars, a shortage of hard currency. So it's not just that liquidity is tight in the country. It's that they, many companies in the country, in order to survive, they need to import, which they need to pay for in dollars, for example. So they need a supply of dollars. And that's the other thing that development finance institutions do. They bring liquidity, but they also bring, importantly, dollar liquidity. Um, but, you know, from a, from a, we are, and clearly we try to do it in a way that's prudent. So we are, we, we try to balance our uh, all the development finance institutions are expected to at least preserve their capital, ideally earn a return. Um, and we're supposed to do that really across good times and bad. So that means you do have to approach this in a prudent way. Uh, but effectively, what we're doing is we're taking a lot more risk for um, a lot uh, a lower, we hope a positive, but a lot lower return. I, I saw you did a guarantee for with a, a banking facility with Societe Generale, and and yeah. And have you are you bracing or expecting you know some losses in those kind of in those kind of deals? Yeah, it 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 um you have to be prepared to uh, have losses. Um, but I think historically, uh, you know, what you hope will happen if you take a bank like, uh, like Societe Generale, it has a particular strength in West Africa, Francophone Africa, the part, the part of Africa where they speak French. They're, they have very good, I mean, they will take our money or work to, with our money uh, um, and they will let, use it to lend to some of the local banks in some of these countries, uh, some of the, in West Africa. Um, and they that in turn will be lent for the you know so they can for trade finance and trade loans and that type of critically needed basic working capital and you hope because they're the the loans in this particular case the loans are relatively short tenor they're normally backed by some sort of trade receivable so historically those type of loans even during the global financial crisis have shown very very small losses um, so you hope that will continue to be the case but it's certainly um, you know, somebody has to do it. Otherwise, these companies, they, 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 these companies will not have the liquidity to survive, and jobs will disappear. Um, but it's clearly there's there's significant risk involved. You mentioned systemic risk, and and the other uh, great systemic risk, of course, is is climate change. And I'm wondering whether yeah. the experience of of the pandemic has changed the way investors think about other systemic risks that have been also predicted over time and and make and and are and are increasingly coming to bear but that maybe haven't been as you say priced into the marketplace and i know you guys just yeah. did a big um, announcement about your own climate plans and yeah. i wonder whether there's a sort of systemic risk mitigation aspect to, to to that plan but also more generally how you think about um you know whether whether the systemic risk of climate change will actually be a, a, a driver of investment yeah i think um to, to a large extent, climate change was obviously visible. The risks of climate change were visible before the COVID crisis happened, they've, and they've been visible, obviously, for uh, a number of years now. Um, but um, uh, but there's no doubt that you know we, as you said, we launched our climate change strategy uh, last week, 
uh, and it's focused on making, you know, sort of turning CDC into a, a, not just a development finance institution, but a, really a green development finance institution. So we've made a specific commitment to, re, to uh, uh, net zero by 2050. We're focusing much more on resilience and adaptation as part of our overall investment portfolio. We're focusing much more on providing support for what we call a just transition. So uh, allowing people to transition and jobs to transition into, into, into a new and greener um, economy but you know when we make investments we have an investment portfolio already that is largely uh, renewable uh, about a billion dollars of our 1.7 billion dollars of infrastructure of of, of of power for example is renewable power but there is still some part of it that is that it was well, some part that's hydro but then some part that, that's still um, uh, gas uh, and uh, so obviously uh, those you have to look at the risk profile of those investments very differently uh, because uh, you know ideally we will be able to transition uh, every country will be able to transition off off uh, uh, to exclusively renewable power i mean we're, we're not there yet to be fair uh, but hopefully over the next certainly between now and 2050 we'll be able to transition exclusively to renewable power so what you the assets if you own assets at the moment that are power for example that's fossil fuel driven i mean those are going to be stranded assets and you have to reflect that in the risk that you're uh, uh, when you think about the investment well, let me just, you know, sort of bringing this all together, you know, get your sort of broad take on, you know, you, you've talked about the risk of whole sectors and, and, and economies um, shutting down in the in the COVID shutdown. You talked about, obviously, the risks in, in climate of broad uh, disruptions. Um, are investors in general, impact investors in general, and CDC Group in particular, responding with the urgency commensurate with those risks and, and, and even opportunities? Yeah, look, I think there's been, I mean, are we are we as a society responding quickly enough? I think it's a really fair question. I mean, a lot of people would say no. Um, that's why we have a climate emergency. I think there has been, uh, when we talk about um, uh, investors, well, particularly impact investors, development finance institutions, there has definitely been a sea change over even the last two or three years, I think, in terms of sort of greater understanding of the climate emergency awareness and a commitment to do something about it, to play a, an important part in doing something about it so in my time you know three years at cdc i think uh, it has been uh, it, when i got to cdc it was i'd have to say to be fair a peripheral issue but it has become totally front and center in our investment process over the last over the last three years and the launch of the climate strategy was a combination of that and that means every single investment we make you know three years ago we might make an investment in renewables for example uh, because we you know uh, it was um, a sort of a, a, an attractive thing to do um, but nowadays every investment that we look at we look at through a climate lens as well as our developmental and, and obviously financial lenses um, so it's a very different perspective. And, you know, we have in part one of our commitments in our climate strategy last week was to get uh, both on a portfolio basis uh, to reduce to net to, to get to net zero emissions by 2050. But importantly, on an each individual investment that we make to justify it based on uh, on on getting to net zero. 
Um, last question, Nick. I know uh, 10 years ago, uh, you were part of the team at JP Morgan at the time that uh, wrote the f uh, sort of seminal first kind of sizing of the impact yeah. market and predictions for, yeah. for 2020, uh, which we've now arrived at. How, mm -hmm. how are we doing? Well, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> we did indeed, uh, almost 10 years in, ago in, in October, and we published this report with, along with colleagues from, from, um, from the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, with the help of Jin. And, um, and yeah, we, at the time, we called it Impact Investing in Emerging Asset Class, and everybody went, what? Because I, there really was no awareness of the term impact investing, and it had only recently been sort of developed. So that well, it was, I suppose, seminal from that perspective, and it was, it was the first time a, a major institution had sort of put that sort of word out there, concept out there. But at the time, I remember we, we and I, I mean, I think our analysis would look pretty flimsy now, to be honest, but um, but we figured that you could end up uh, over the next decade with somewhere between I think we said 400 billion to a trillion dollars of impact assets. And at the time, for, well, first of all, everybody sort of looked at the higher number and said that was crazy, couldn't happen. And of course, today we are in uh, we are uh, you know by some estimates the IFC estimate, for example, is over two trillion dollars. Um, and so, so we feel pretty good about about uh, um, about that call, basically. And I think COVID will be another accelerator in the same way the global financial crisis was. I think it's going to be another great catalyst for mainstreaming impact investment and mainstreaming the idea that every time that you invest capital, you should be asking yourself not just about risk and return, but risk, return and impact. And, I, and that has the potential to have a massive change on the, in the world that we, that we live in. So it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting and it, it feels like a long time ago, 10 years, but actually it feel, uh, but I think we're just sort of beginning really in terms of the, the, uh, uh, this uh, movement. Well, thank you, Nick. Risk, return, and impact. Nick mm. Donahue, mm. uh, CEO of the CDC Group in London. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank, thank you, David. That's going to do it for this episode of Agents of Impact. You can read more about Nick and the CDC Group at impactalpha.com. Subscribers to Impact Alpha receive our daily email brief, including deal flow, job postings, and original features, as well as full access to impactalpha.com, Agents of Impact conference calls, our members-only Slack channels, and much more. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Nick O'Donoghue and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. See you again soon.